Chapter Twenty Two of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Erin. Stone dead hath no fellow. One. Aveling said the Earl of Stowe with determination one morning eight days later. I've decided to go about this matter to-day to one of the secretaries of state, Jardine, for choice. Oh, but, my lord, protested his son in astonishment, oh, you cannot, you're quite unfit to leave the house. For the enemy whose approach Lord Stowe had announced to you and Cameron a fortnight ago, if still kept more or less at bay, had not yet withdrawn from the assault, and his lordship was still confined to his bedroom, where he sat at this moment in a dressing-gown, one swathed foot supported on a rest. "'Oh, my dear child,' said Lord Stowe, who considered the situation, "'here we are at the 2nd of June, and in five days, unless a miracle be performed for him, that unfortunate gentleman suffers at Tyburn. For all my promises to Mr. Cameron, and for all the representations which I have made to those in authority, I have accomplished nothing on his kinsman's behalf.' nor can I see any sign of the petitions delivered to His Majesty and the two princesses at the beginning of this week, having had any effect whatsoever. I must make yet another effort, for when a man's life is at stake, what is a gouty toe? I'll call Rogers, let him dress me, and I will be carried down to my coach and go to see Mr. Jardine. Lord Aveling looked at his father with real admiration, and, indeed, who shall say that heroism is confined to the young and heroic? Then he rang the bell for Rogers, and to that horrified elderly valet, Lord Stowe conveyed his self-sacrificing intention. Meanwhile, Aveling went to visit his mother, whom he found at her toilet table, her woman in attendance. Oh, your father is completely crazy, she said, on hearing the news. Oh, I have no patience with such foolishness. Why should he so put himself about for this Dr. Cameron, who is less than nothing to him? If the government mean to hang and quarter him, they will, and no amount of inflammation to my lord's toe will save him. Oh, Willis, give me the hare's foot and the last pot of rouge that I commanded, and the new kind. I am a thought too pale to-day. Oh, I do not think, said her son, studying his mother's delicate profile, as she leant forward to the mirror and put the last touches to her complexion. He was never admitted at any unbecoming stage of her toilette, and all fashionable people rouged, as a matter of course. Oh, I do not think that the Earl is doing this entirely on Dr. Cameron's account. He considers, as you know, that he owes a heavy debt to Mr. Ewan Cameron, and to use his influence on his kinsman's behalf is the manner in which he undertook to discharge it. Lady Stowe dabbed with a hare's foot a moment before saying anything, and when she spoke, her tone was a curious one. How oh, I, too, made an offer to that young man, that I would tell him anything he wished to know about your poor brother, and that he should be admitted for that purpose at any hour when I was not receiving. How oh, I cannot learn that he has ever tried to avail himself of the opportunity. And no doubt he has been very much occupied, suggested Lord Aveling. It was probably he who escorted Mrs. Cameron, when she went to deliver her petition to His Majesty last Sunday at Kensington, and fainted, and poor lady, ere she could present it. The Countess laid down the hare's foot and surveyed the result. 
Now, to be frank, I think that unfortunate woman must be making herself a great nuisance to the royal family. The king, the princess Amelia, and the princess dowager of Wales, all battered with petitions. Oh, I do not wonder that she has been shut up in the tower with her husband, to prevent her from troubling any more people of position in that way. Oh, shut up in the tower, exclaimed Aveling. Oh, I had not heard that. Oh, it may be only a rumour, admitted his mother. If it be true, then perhaps we shall see Mr. Cameron here again. Oh, I wish you would tell me, Aveling, what you quarrelled about in Scotland. And she darted a sudden glance at him. Francis, Lord Aveling, shook his head, smiling. Oh, about nothing that you could possibly imagine. And we are excellent friends now. Oh, for your half-brother's sake, I suppose, observed Lady Stowe, taking up a gold pouncet box and sniffing the essence in it. Oh, I'm not sure that that is the reason. Oh, well, whatever be the attraction, you can tell your new friend, when next you see him, that if he is tired of escorting females in distress about London, my invitation still remains open. Lady Stowe rose, and sweeping away towards the long mirror at a little distance, examined the fall of her sack. And then, a tiny spot of colour burning under the rouge, she said carelessly, Do bring him again, Francis. I vow his highland strangeness diverts me. Only Mrs. Willis, her woman, noticed that her ladyship's right hand was clenched hard round the pouncet box, which she still held. The heroic, no doubt, must pay for their admirable deeds. Nevertheless, the consciousness of their heroism is probably sustaining during the latter process. Besides, this particular piece of heroism had not been in vain. When, about an hour and a half later, Lord Aveling heard the rumble of his father's returning coach, he hurried down to find the courageous nobleman being assisted from it, and hardly suppressing his cries of anguish. No, no, not like that. Oh, Jenkins, don't be so damned clumsy. Oh, yes, that's better. Oh, my God, what an infernal invention is gout. How oh, is that you, Aveling? I'm going straight to bed. Come and see me in a quarter of an hour. But when he entered the bedchamber, Lord Aveling found his parent disposed in an easy chair, as before. No, I was sure I could not endure the pressure of the bedclothes. The foot is better, thus. Oh, damn it! Oh, don't speak, there's a good fellow. The young man went and looked out of the window at the swaying green in the square garden. More and more did he respect his progenitor. Yet it must be worse to hang. And the rest, in beautiful summer weather, too. Ah, tis easier now, for the moment, said the sufferer's voice. I'll come and sit down by me, Francis. Only, for God's sake, nowhere near my foot. At any rate, I've got something out of this inferno. I only wonder that it never occurred to me before, when I might have spared myself these torments. Jardine put the case in a nutshell. Oh, why? asked he. Do you come to me? Go to the Duke of Argyle. If he will but intercede for Dr. Cameron's life, he will not be refused. He is our first man in Scotland, and it is not our interest to deny him a favour when he thinks proper to ask it. So you see, Aveling, that if only the Duke can be got to make intercession for Dr. Cameron, the thing is done. Now, 
why did no one ever think of applying to him before? For there's no doubt that Jardine is right. And father and son looked at each other. What must be done at once, said Lord Stowe. The Duke, I think, is in town. Oh, but who is to do it? Why, the person best qualified, the poor gentleman's wife. Aveling nodded. But what if it be true, as my mother seems to have heard, that Mrs. Cameron has been shut up in the tower with her husband? And what then? Oh, shut up in the tower, exclaimed the Earl. Oh, surely not. He turned his head. Oh, what is it, Rogers? Oh, I understand, my lord, from the footman, that Mr. Cameron is below, inquiring for my lord Aveling. How, oh, Mr. Cameron, I'll see him at once, quoth Aveling, getting up. Oh, this is very opportune. I can tell him this hopeful news of yours, my lord. Yes, and tell him to urge the poor lady to appeal to the duke without wasting an hour. Oh, don't for heaven's sake come near this foot, and boy. Tell him that I will give her an introduction to his grace. Egad, I'll be writing now to the duke to ask for an audience for her while you interview Mr. Cameron. I'll tell him, too, at what cost you gained this promising notion, said the young man, smiling at his father as he left the bedchamber. Downstairs, in the library which had witnessed their reconciliation, Ewan Cameron was standing, staring at the marble caryatids of the hearth, so fixedly that he hardly seemed to hear the door open. Aveling went up to him and laid a hand on his shoulder. "'I've some hopeful news for you, my dear Mr. Cameron.' And Ewan turned. Aveling thought him looking very pale and harassed. Oh, "'I have need of it, my lord.' In spite of his gout, my father has just been to see one of the secretaries of state. Oh, no, no, he added quickly, for such a light had dawned upon the Highlander's face that out of consideration he hastened to quench it. Oh, tis no promise of anything, but an excellent piece of advice. Mr. Secretary Jardine says that if his grace of Argyle would intercede for Dr. Cameron's life, the government would undoubtedly grant his request. Neither my father nor I can imagine why we never thought of that course earlier. A strange, hot wave of colour passed over Ardroy's face, leaving it more haggard-looking than before. "'Then I suppose it must be done,' he said, in a sombre voice. "'Do you know why I am here, Lord Aveling? "'It is a sufficiently strange coincidence to be met with this recommendation. "'I came to ask what his lordship thought of the prospects of an application to the Duke of Argyle.' "'Why?' cried the younger man. This is indeed extraordinary, that you, also, should have thought of making application in that quarter. Oh, not I. I doubt if I should ever have thought of it, responded Ewan, frowning. The notion is Mrs. Cameron's. How excellent, cried Lord Aveling, because she is the one person to carry it out, as my father and I were just agreeing. If she will go, he will give her— How she cannot go, broke in Ardroy. Oh, that is the difficulty. She is herself a prisoner in the tower now, at her own request, in order that she may be with her husband for, for the few days that remain. The only way, it seems, in which this request could be complied with was to make her as close a prisoner as he is. It was done the night before last. And this morning I received a distracted letter from her, 
Evidently this thought of appealing to the Duke to use his influence had come to her there, too late for her to carry it out. He paused, his hands clenched and unclenched themselves. So, she has asked me to be her deputy. Oh, well, after all, said Aveling reflectively, you are a near kinsman of her husband's, are you not, which would lend you quite sufficient standing. My father will give you an introduction to the Duke. Indeed, I believe he is now writing to him on Mrs. Cameron's behalf. Yes, I suppose I must do it, said Ewan between his teeth. He was gazing at an impassive caryatid again. You will not carry so much less weight than poor Mrs. Cameron, observed Aveling consolingly. Of course, and to put it brutally, there is much appeal in a woman's tears, but, on the other hand, you will be able to plead more logically, more... Oh, plead, exclaimed Ewan, facing round with flashing eyes. Aye, that's it, plead. Beg mercy from a Campbell. Aveling stared at him, startled at his look and tone. Oh, what is the obstacle? Ah, I remember, your clans are not friendly. But if Dr. Cameron can countenance... Oh, he knows nothing about it, said Ewan sharply. And his wife, not being a Cameron-born, does not understand your natural repugnance. Oh, she does, answered Ewan starkly, for she is a Cameron-born. She knows what it means to me but she implores me. And could I, in any case, hold back if I thought there were the faintest chance of success? And now you tell me that one of the secretaries of state actually counsels it. Oh, God, pity me, and that I must go through with it, then, and kneel to Mach Calain Mor for Archibald Cameron's sake. Why oh, not do it for my own? The blank-eyed busts which topped the bookshelves in Lord Stowe's sleepy, decorous library must have listened in amazement to this unchaining of Highland clan feeling, a phenomenon quite new to them, for even Lord Aveling was taken aback by the bitter transformation it had worked in a man already wrought upon by grief and protracted anxiety. "'Oh, let me go, then, Cameron,' he cried. "'Oh, God knows, I'm sorry enough for your cousin,' and I have no objection to appealing to the Duke of Argyle. I would do my very utmost, I promise you. Or, perhaps, you could find some other substitute. Oh, you are goodness itself, said Ewan in a softened tone. No, I am the man, since Dean Cameron cannot go. It may be, he added, in a rather strangled voice, that, just because I am a Cameron and an enemy, Machalain Moore may be moved to do a magnanimous act. Oh, God, he must do it, for all other hopes are breaking, and there's so little time left. 2. It was with that despairing cry in his ears that Aveling had hastened upstairs to his father's room and held counsel with him. As a result of this conclave, Lord Stowe wrote a fresh letter to the Duke of Argyle, saying that he was anxious to wait upon his grace with a friend whom he was desirous of presenting to him. He did not mention the friend's name, lest by chance the audience should be refused. But that as he was himself confined to his room with gout, he would send his son in his stead, if the Duke would allow. 
the same afternoon the duke replied very civilly by messenger that he would receive lord aveling and his friend at eleven o'clock on monday morning the sabbath he explained he kept strictly as a day set apart from all worldly matters so two days were lost but as aveling assured that friend the duke's influence was so great that he could no doubt have dr cameron reprieved on the very steps of the scaffold and to those the jacobite would not come till thursday nor did ardroy have to go to the duke of argyle with his hat in his hand and a letter of recommendation like a lackey seeking a place as he had pictured himself since he went under the auspices of the earl of stowe and accompanied by that nobleman's heir how oh, i shall present you said aveling to him as they went and then take my leave at the first opportunity is not that what you would prefer oh, as you will replied ewan and then forcing a smile yes i believe i should prefer it you are always consideration itself my dear lord that was almost all that passed between them till they came to argyle house and waiting in the portico into which there drifted a faint perfume of late lilacs from the duke's garden ewan thought when next i stand here the die will have been cast one way or the other his heart began to beat violently and when the door was flung open he was so pale that his companion looked at him with some uneasiness but as he stepped over machcallan moore's threshold ardroy had gathered up his forces and regained at least his outward composure the two were ushered into a large and lofty room sparsely but massively furnished at the end of which hung a great blue velvet curtain suggesting another room beyond over the hearth voyaged the lymphad the proud galley of lorne a sinister device to many a clan of the west ewan averted his eyes from it how long he wondered would he on whose ancestral banners it had fluttered keep the suppliant waiting but fortunately he neither knew as yet what name the suppliant bore nor indeed that he came to sue but the duke was punctual to the moment a large clock by the wall with a heavy pendulum of gilt and crystal struck the hour and the echo of its chimes had not died away before the velvet curtain parted in the middle held back by an announcing lackey his grace the duke of argyle and he who was sometimes called the king of scotland came through a man of seventy upright and dignified and rather cold plainly but richly dressed with a heavy full-bottomed wig framing a delicate featured face of much intelligence though he had only succeeded his brother the second duke a decade ago for more than forty years archibald campbell once lord ayla had been the mainstay of the english government in the north and all this was written without ostentation in his air lord aveling who had never seen the duke at close quarters was impressed and wondered what the highlander by his side was feeling but abstained from looking at him my lord aveling i think said argyle pleasantly and the young man bowed i am sorry to hear that the earl of stowe is indisposed it gives me however the chance of making your acquaintance he came forward with a little smile and held out his hand oh, pray present me also to this gentleman whose name i have not the honour of knowing 
and all at once young lord aveling used as he was to all the demands of society a new nervousness though not for himself something of it was apparent in his voice as he replied this your grace is mr ewan cameron of ardroy a near kinsman of the gentleman now under sentence in the tower what age had left of the duke's eyebrows lifted a line appeared on either side of his mouth and what does mr ewan cameron there was the faintest stress on the patronymic a want of me and his gaze not hostile not piercing but unmistakably the gaze of command rested on aveling's tall companion your grace began ewan but it seemed to him that his voice was frozen in his throat it was not awe which enchained it for he was not in the least overawed but the realization of this man's power for life or death and of his personality he was machalin moore the chief of the hated swarming and triumphant race of campbell and he seemed to be feigning ignorance of why he the cameron was there to wait upon him so that he might have the reason which he could well have guessed put by the petitioner into words and the moment was as bitter as death to ardroy and he hoped that lord aveling would leave them alone together but he finished his sentence your grace i am come on behalf of mrs cameron and by her express desire she now having made herself close prisoner with her husband and being therefore unable to wait upon you herself you come as the emissary of a lady sir inquired the duke smoothly your errand must have my best attention then but we stand all this while oh pray be seated gentlemen he waved them towards chairs oh, if your grace will excuse me put in lord aveling i will withdraw i came but to present mr cameron in my father's stead and both of you deputies in fact said argyle looking from one to the other and again he smiled the little smile which did not reach his eyes i am sorry to lose your company my lord but i know that you young men if you'll forgive me for calling you one have better things to occupy you than talking affairs with an old one mr cameron and i will then bid you farewell with regret commend me if you please to his lordship and convey to him my condolences on his indisposition he shook hands again with every appearance of cordiality a footman appeared and aveling was gone the duke turned with equal courtesy to the visitor who remained and now mr cameron cameron of ardroy is it not ardroy near loch arkig if i'm not mistaken and pray be seated and let me know in what i can serve you on mrs cameron's behalf and the chance to do so is not a pleasure of frequent occurrence where one of your name is concerned oh if your grace will permit me i'd rather stand said ewan somewhat hoarsely i'm come as i'm sure you can guess as a suppliant how oh, is that so remarked the duke looking long and steadily at him his face betrayed nothing and you will forgive me perhaps if i myself sit for i'm old and weary and he seated himself slowly in a high-backed chair you come you say as a suppliant and i'm to see in you the representative of mrs cameron oh if you please my lord of a woman who turns to you in her mortal distress as her last hope how oh, i think 
said the Duke of Argyll, in a soft voice, that, with a Highland gentleman such as yourself, I prefer to be Macallan Moore. Ewan swallowed hard. It had come to him that he could only get through his mission if he forgot that fact. Because, for one thing, went on Argyll, if you are a kinsman of Dr. Cameron's, you are equally a kinsman of his brother, the late Lochiel, and of the boy who is Lochiel now. Yes, I am a kinsman of all three, said Ewan in a low voice. Archibald Campbell was trying, was he, to fancy that in some sort he had the chief of Clan Cameron before him, about to beg for mercy. A kinsman by marriage. And do not think, Macallan Moore. He gave him the title, since he wished it, and had every right to it. And do not think that Dr. Cameron himself knows of his wife's appeal to you. And no. But let us be clear, Mr. Cameron, on what score she, or you, or which am I to say, is appealing to me. You have not yet informed me. Ewan's lip gave a little curl as he drew himself up. How oh, the Campbell knew perfectly well the nature of that appeal. He himself did not look much like a suppliant as he stood there facing the Duke, nor did he feel like one, but he did his best to keep his tone that of a petitioner. Mrs. Cameron desires to throw herself at your grace's feet, as at those of the foremost man in Scotland, whose wish is paramount with the government in all things Scottish, and to beg, to implore you to use your great influence to have the sentence on her husband commuted. How oh, commuted, said Argyle, after a moment. Commuted to what? To imprisonment, and to transportation, and to anything save an undeserved death. And the Duke leant forward, his fine hands, half hidden by the ruffles, grasping the iron-headed arms of his chair. How undeserved, do you say, Mr. Cameron? A man comes from abroad, with every circumstance of secrecy, not once or twice only, but constantly, and during a period of seven years, to work against the established government in the North, and to foment disaffection by any means in his power, to promise foreign intervention in aid of it. All this, in a country just settling down after a most disastrous upheaval, in which he, too, bore a prominent part. And you call his death undeserved. Having regard to Dr. Cameron's private character, replied Ardroy firmly, I do. Your Grace must know what on all sides is acknowledged to be the case, how blameless a reputation he bears, and how humane, and how strenuously, before the troubles, he upheld all Lochiel's efforts for the betterment of the clan. It was largely due to him, too, that Glasgow did not fare worse during the hostilities, and that Kirk and Tillock was spared, and Mr. Campbell of Shawfield's house and property protected. Dr. Cameron's is not the case of an ordinary plotter, my lord. In what manner can any plotter be extraordinary, Mr. Cameron, save perchance in the amount of harm he does, asked the Duke. In that, certainly, Dr. Cameron has been singular. Since the year 1747, his comings and goings, or his supposed comings and goings, have kept Lochaber and the West in a continual ferment. In his private character, he may be all that you urge, and more, yet he has proved the veritable stormy petrel of the Highlands, 
and the sentence on him is so well deserved that if i were to crawl on all fours to the english government and they would not remit it you underrate your power macarain moore said ewan in a low voice oh god did he mean that or was he merely holding out for more fervid more grovelling entreaties you underrate your power he repeated and you would show more than your power your generosity by intervening on behalf of a man whose ancestors and yours have no doubt broke in argyle before the sentence was completed oh, but that would be somewhat of a selfish luxury i have to consider my country not my own reputation for magnanimity and you insist upon this passionately oh my lord my lord you would be considering your country the best interests of this government are surely not served by the carrying out of this extraordinarily harsh sentence which your grace must be aware is agitating all london there is no doubt whatever and in your heart you must know it that an act of mercy on the part of the present dynasty would do far more towards establishing it in popular esteem than the depriving one jacobite of life on a seven-year-old attainder could possibly do and when i spoke of my country mr cameron said the duke with emphasis i meant my native land scotland whose welfare and good settlement i had at heart before you were born now you desire that i should induce the english government to commute dr cameron's sentence in order that he may have the opportunity of going back to injure her again and as ewan tried to protest he went on more strongly no mr cameron if i advise his majesty's ministers to commute the sentence to one of perpetual imprisonment that is only to make of dr cameron a constant centre of intrigue and trouble ending after some years in his escape as george kelly escaped in the end for there are plenty of crypto jacobites in london who will conspire though they will not fight if transportation is substituted for imprisonment and then he may escape and return to scotland more easily still no i cannot now go back upon the work and convictions of a lifetime and deliberately plant again in my country's breast the thorn which by good fortune has just been plucked from it you said a while ago murmured ewan with stiff cold lips the great room grown a little misty and unreal about him you said that the government would not grant you this boon though you crawled to them and yet one of its first officials has stated that such a request would not be denied for a moment if you made it now you say that it goes against your conscience to make it which is it my lord duke argyle got up from his chair you are a very bold young man mr cameron of ardroy are you trying to bring me to book the look which flickered over his pale dignified features was nearer amusement than irritation how oh, i do not think that mrs cameron would have taken that line oh, believe me it is not a wise one oh, i will take any line that that pleases your grace declared ewan desperate was he throwing away what jean cameron might have won do you wish me who though i am not of lochiel have a strain of the blood and am a cadet of the clan and do you wish me to kneel to you i will here and now if you will ask for archibald cameron's life 
Oh, there is no need for you to assume that uncomfortable position, Mr. Cameron, replied the Duke dryly. Spiritually, you are already upon your knees. And I'm sorry if the floor is hard, since I cannot for a moment entertain your request. It is a harsh saying, no doubt, but a very true one, when matters of this kind are in question. And it was an Englishman who uttered it. Stone dead hath no fellow. I am grieved that I must endorse it in the case of Dr. Cameron, for I consider that the government is more than justified in carrying out this long overdue sentence. A sentence better merited, indeed, today than it was even at the time of its infliction. And for the sake of Scotland's welfare, I cannot advise them to do otherwise. Ewan put his hand up to his throat. Otherwise, he did not move. Those were the accents of finality. To entreat further was only to batter oneself against a rock, to lower Archie himself in the eyes of the Campbell. Would Jean Cameron now have wept, implored, clung round the knees of Machcallin Mor? Oh, surely not. Oh, it is not, went on Argyle, walking slowly to and fro with his hands behind his back. It is not as though Dr. Cameron had shown the slightest sign of real repentance for his ill doings, and the slightest intention of future amendment. His answers before the Privy Council in April were inspired by the most obstinate intention of concealing every fact he knew under cover of having forgotten it, and when last month, immediately after sentence had been passed upon him, he, in a conversation with Mr. Sharp, the solicitor to the Treasury, seemed to lament his unhappy position and to say that if his majesty extended his clemency to him, he would strive to lead his fellow clansmen into less treasonable paths. There was not one word of the only course which could conceivably merit such clemency, the making of disclosures. Through the silence, the slow swing of the pendulum of the great gilt clock behind Ewan seemed to emphasize how fast the sands were slipping in the glass of Archibald Cameron's life. Ardroy clenched one hand round the wrist of the other. His eyes were fixed, not on the Duke, who had come to a standstill, but on the shaft of yellowish light which penetrated the aperture between the curtains. Oh, so that was the only chance. A mocking rift of hope like that blade of thin sunlight, a spar in the tumbling sea which one must let drive by and drown without clutching. Disclosures, he said at last, and there was nothing in his voice to show what he thought of the word or the thing. You mean, my Lord Duke, that if Dr. Cameron were to become a second Murray of Broughton, that if he would tell all he knows? The Duke held up his hand quickly. Oh, pray, Mr. Cameron, do not associate me with any suggestion so affronting to a Highlander. I merely mentioned that Mr. Sharp, as I remember, seemed much disappointed for the government are well aware that there is some new scheme afoot. You must draw what conclusion you can from that. For myself, I think the bargain would scarce be worth the government's while. Yet, out of a perhaps misplaced humanity, I will go so far as to point out that that door, which was once open, may, for aught I know, be open still. Open still, open still, the crystal pendulum swung on, but that was not what it was saying. 
Your grace is very good. Ewan heard his own voice, and wondered at its cold steadiness, since his heart felt neither cold nor steady. But that is not a door at which a Cameron of Lochiel could ever knock. I will detain you no further, Machcalain Mor. He supposed that Argyle must have summoned a footman, for soon after that he passed once more through the pillars of the portico. And once outside, in the brief summer shower, laden with that scent of lilacs, which was now making sweet the June dust, all the leaping flame of repressed feeling sank to extinction, and in its place there was nothing but ice about his heart. He had failed. The last hope of all was gone. On Thursday. And now he must write to Jean Cameron and tell her. End of section 22section 23 of the gleam in the north by d k broster this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by elin constant as steel and after that came the death and life of those intervening two days which seemed a whole lifetime on the rack and yet a river hurrying with implacable haste to the sea there was no hope for Archibald Cameron now, except the faint possibility of that eleventh-hour reprieve to which a few still pinned their faith. At one moment Ewan would feel that the intensity of his desire alone must call this into being, and the next that he had always known the sentence would take its course. Lord Stowe, grave and disappointed, advised him not to trust to a miracle. It was remarkable that Aveling, young and generous-hearted though he was, gave the same advice, and would not take the easier path of trying to buoy up his friend's spirits with an anticipation which he did not share. But Lady Stowe, with whom Ewan had had an interview, not of his seeking, on the Tuesday, proclaimed her conviction that the execution would not take place, and hinted at the influence which she herself had brought to bear on certain members of the government. Hector Grant was in a frenzy, dashing hither and thither, sure that something could still be done, and talking wildly of a rescue at Tyburn itself, of kidnapping Lord Newcastle or Henry Pelham and holding them to ransom, and other schemes equally impossible. But by noon on Wednesday Ewan had abandoned all dreams, sober and extravagant alike. His faint hope of seeing Archie once more was dead, too. Even the Earl of Stowe's influence could not procure him another interview. And in the afternoon he shut himself up in his lodging, and would see no one, not even Hector. He could talk about tomorrow's tragedy no longer, and, like a wounded animal, would seek solitude, only asked to be left alone. How desperately hard it was to meet a friend's fate with composure and resignation, how much less hard to face one's own. He knew, for he himself had once been almost as near the scaffold as Archibald Cameron was now. He had sat for he knew not how long that afternoon, immured in the close little parlour, with the window fast shut, since the moment when he had overheard two men in the street below, 
arranging to go to Tyburn on the morrow, and one of them, who was a trifle drunk, offering the other some only too vivid reminiscences of the execution of the Scottish Jacobites in 1746. Ewan had sprung up, and calling upon his maker, had slammed down the window with such violence that he had nearly shattered it. And then, after walking to and fro for a while like a man demented, he had flung himself down on the settle, and was still sitting there, his head and his hands, when a timid tap at the door announced Mrs. Wilson. "'Why'd not disturb you, sir,' she whispered sympathetically, "'but that there's a messenger below from the tower, in a hackney coach, and he brings this.' She held out a letter. Ewan lifted his head from his hands. "'From the tower?' he repeated, looking at her stupidly. "'Surely she did not mean that.' But, opening the letter, he saw the heading, saw, too, that it came from the deputy lieutenant. "'Dear sir,' it ran, "'Dr. Cameron, having very earnestly desired to see you once more, and I myself having come to the conclusion that it were better Mrs. Cameron did not pass the night here, but left before the gates were shut.' and that some friend should be present to take her away. I have obtained leave from the constable for you to visit the prisoner, and also to perform this office, and have therefore sent the bearer in a hackney coach to bring you back with all speed, as the gates must infallibly be closed at six o'clock this evening. Your obedient humble servant, Charles Rainsford. Ewan drew a long breath. Oh, I will come at once, he said. Nearly all the way, jolting in the coach with a warder, or whatever he was, Ardroy was turning over and over a once entertained but long abandoned idea of changing clothes with Archie. And the same obstacle brought him up again, his own unusual stature, though Archie was of a good height himself. Yet this unexpected summons did so clearly seem as though fate were holding out a last opportunity of rescue. But what opportunity! Ewan's former visit had shown him how impregnable were the tower walls, how closely guarded the gates. Tonight every soul there would be doubly alert. And if Archie were by now in irons, there was no hope of any kind. There was little enough in any case. To his surprise, when he came to the Byward Tower, they did not offer to search him, and he was told, also, that Dr. Cameron had been moved from the lieutenant's house it was there, in the Byward Tower itself. Ewan asked the reason. Oh, it was thought safer, sir. My lords Kilmarnock and Balmerino were lodged here in forty-six, though my lord Kilmarnock, too, was at first in the lieutenant's house. And Mrs. Cameron, is she in this tower with her husband? No, sir, she remains in the lieutenant's house until she leaves, before the gates are shut. He would see Archie alone, then, and he could not but be glad of that. It had indeed a very different setting, this last meeting, and one which better fitted the circumstances than the former. Unlike the pleasant apartments, with their glimpses of the outer world, this place was heavily charged with an atmosphere of finality, for the roof curved cage-like above the large circular stone-vaulted room with its narrow windows. In the middle was a table with a couple of chairs, and at this table Archie was sitting with a book open before him. But his eyes were on the door. 
He was not in irons. They clasped hands in silence as the door swung to and clashed home. Only then did Ewan see that they were not alone, for some distance away a wooden-faced warder sat stiffly on a chair against the wall. Oh, cannot that man leave us for a little, murmured Ewan. No, said his cousin. I must have a shadow now, until, until there's no more need of watching me. Oh, this good fellow must even sleep here tonight. Oh, but we can speak French or Erse. He'll not understand either. Ewan was bitterly disappointed. If there were witness present, they'd not the faintest chance of changing clothes. He said as much in his native tongue. Oh, my dear Ewan, replied Archibald Cameron, smiling. Her nature, when she gave you that frame, never intended you for such a role. And, in any case, it is quite impracticable. Come, sit down and let us talk. You see, there is another chair. It seemed of a tragic incongruity to sit quietly talking at a table, but Ewan obeyed. Talk he could not at first. But Archie began to speak with perfect calm of his last arrangements, such as they were. He had given his wife, he said, what he had been able to set down from time to time of his wishes and sentiments, by means of a bit of blunt pencil which he had contrived to get hold of, after all. Four or five scraps of paper they are, he concluded. I could not come by more, but I've signed my name to every one of them, that they may be known for authentic. Only once did he betray emotion. It was in speaking of his young children in exile and their future, so desperately uncertain when he was gone. Oh, I've no money to leave them, he said sadly. Had that gold from Loch Arkig really stayed in my hands, and they would not be penniless now, poor bairns. But I've been very much pleased, he went on, with a letter which my wife showed me from my eldest boy. You remember John, Ewan. He always had a great admiration for you. I have for some time observed in him a sense of loyalty and honour, much beyond what might have been expected from a boy of his years, and in this letter of which I speak he expresses not only his conviction of my inviolable fidelity to the cause, but a desire that I should rather sacrifice my life than save it upon dishonourable terms. I have great hopes of his future, even though the principles of uprightness and loyalty be not over-popular nowadays. Ewan saw that great velvet curtain in the Duke of Argyle's house with a shaft of light slipping through. How did Archie know of that appeal? He certainly did not know of the chance of life which Ewan himself had rejected on his behalf, and for that Ewan had not communicated to Mrs. Cameron when he wrote. Did the Privy Council, he asked, somewhat hesitatingly, ever hold out a promise of mercy if you would make disclosures? Archie nodded. Yes, and I believe that hopes of my doing so must have been cherished for some time after my examination, since Mr. Sharp, the solicitor to the Treasury, certainly had them as late as the 17th of May, when I was sentenced. Now tell me, Ewan, he added, looking at him hard, for Jean has confessed to me the step which she worked upon you to take. Had his grace of Argyle the same hopes? You know of that, exclaimed Ewan, half apprehensive, half relieved. You know, 
and you forgive me for going to him. Oh, my dear lad, there's no question of forgiveness. I ought to thank you from the bottom of my heart for undertaking what I know must have been a very repugnant task. Moreover, as I am neither a saint nor a hermit, but an ordinary man like the next, I'll not deny that a span of forty-six years sometimes seems a little short to me. If Machkalein Mor could by honourable means have prolonged it, I should not have relished accepting the boon from his hands, but I should not have refused it. Ewan turned very pale. Archie, you make me feel like your executioner. You might have had your life, perhaps, but I... In effect, I refused it for you. I... But it's not too late. He half rose from his chair. Archie caught at his arm. Lachin, I guess why you refused it for me. Should I think that you know me less well than my poor John? I'd like to have had the refusing of it to Machcalain Moore himself, on the terms which I can divine that he offered. To do him justice, he offered nothing. At the end, indeed, he spoke of, of a possible door. You can guess what it was. He would have not to do with it himself. Yet, and Ewan turned his head away. What an inhuman, sterile deity seemed, after all, and that abstraction called honour. Oh, Archie, if it were possible to accept. It was not so hard, then, to turn one's back on the chance. I did it without weighing the matter. I knew you would not consent. But it is much harder now. And at last he looked at his cousin, with eyes which, half ashamedly, implored, as if somehow, somehow, Archibald Cameron smiled and gave his head a little shake. You will be glad by this time tomorrow. What welcome do you think Murray of Broughton's former friends give him nowadays? And would you set the door of Ardroy wide for me, Ewan, were I to save my skin as he did? Oh, you know you would not. But enough of this talk. There's been no choice in the matter. I could not bring myself to betray either my companions or my prince's plans. Yet you yourself have been betrayed, came instinctively to Ewan's lips. Archie's face clouded a little. I'm glad to think that I do not know, the informer, whether the thing was done of his own free will or at another's instigation. It is easier to forgive thus. This time it was Ewan who was determined that Archie should read nothing upon his face, and he said it immovably. Of what use to burden his spirit, so soon to be gone, with a hatred and suspicion which lay so heavy on his own since the encounter with young Glensheehan. Moreover, luckily, perhaps, Archie here pulled out his watch. How good Mr. Falconer, the Scots non-juran clergyman who has been visiting me, and will attend me to Tyburn to-morrow, is to bring me the sacrament at five o'clock. I would have wished to take it to-morrow morning before I set out, but then Jean could not have received it with me, nor you, or if you wish to do so. How will it be here? Yes. The doctor pointed to where a little table, covered with a white cloth, stood against the wall, with two or three footstools ranged before it and Jean herself will be brought hither. 
but I've said farewell to her already. Oh, Ewan, be patient with her. Though, indeed, she has the bravest heart of any woman living. Oh, you do not need to urge that, said Ardroy. Oh, I know that I do not. It is you who are to take her away from the tower, too. God bless you. Shall I take her back to Lille? Oh, it is not necessary. That is arranged for. Archie got up suddenly. Ewan had a glimpse of his face and knew that he was thinking of the fatherless children to whom she would return. He sat there, rapidly and quite unconsciously fluttering over the leaves of the book lying on the table, and then said in a voice which he could scarcely command, Oh, Archie, is there nothing else that I can do for you? Dr. Cameron came and sat down again. Oh, there is something, but perhaps it is too hard to ask. Oh, if it be anything which concerns me alone, it is not too hard. Then I would ask you to be there tomorrow. And you went recoiled. I did not dream that you would ask that. Oh, you would rather stay away. Oh, Archie, what do you think I'm made of? Archibald Cameron looked at him rather wistfully. Oh, I thought, but it was, I see, a selfish thought, that I should like to see one face of a friend there at the last. Oh, I've heard that a Tyburn crowd, accustomed to thieves and murderers, is not a pleasant one, and I've been warned that there will be very many people there. Oh, they will not be hostile, Archie, that I can stake my soul on. You do not know the sympathetic and indignant feeling there is abroad. But if you wish it, I will be there. Nay, if it is your wish, I will make it mine also. Yet even you will not ask me to remain until the end of all, he asked imploringly. No, said his cousin gravely but serenely. Not until that. Yet I think the end, thank God, will matter very little to me. In spite of the terms of the sentence and of Lord Chief Justice Lee, I've a good hope that I shall not be cut down until I am quite dead. Oh, Ewan, Ewan, think it's yourself that's going to the gallows, as you nearly did once, and not I. You would not play the child over your own fate, I know that well. For Ewan had his head on his arms, and his nails were digging into the table. He did not answer. How oh, I could wish it were not Tyburn, Archibald Cameron went on, as if to himself. Oh, my lords Kilmarnock and Balmerino were luckier to suffer on Tower Hill and by the axe. Yet I must not complain, being but a commoner. Indeed, I should think of the great Marquis of Montrose, who was hanged likewise, and from a very lofty ladder, too. And I thank my God I was always easier ashamed than frightened. Ewan, Mr. Falconer will be here in a few minutes. And do you wish to make some preparation before you take communion with me? Ewan roused himself and mechanically knelt down by the table where he had been sitting, put his hands before his face and tried to say a prayer. But it was impossible. His whole soul was too pulsing with revolt to bow down before that mystery of divine self-humiliation and pain and joy. He could not even say, Lord, I'm not worthy. His heart was nothing but a burning stone. 
Nevertheless, he still knelt there, rising only when he heard the bolts withdrawn, and there came in, first a very tall, thin man, in lay dress, who walked with a limp, and then on the arm of Rainsford himself, Mrs. Cameron. The deputy lieutenant considerately dismissed the warder, and himself took the man's place, and almost before Ewan, and dazed with pain, had realized it, the service was beginning. Archibald Cameron, his hand in his wife's, knelt at some distance from the improvised altar, Ewan a little way behind them. And, save that it was not dark, but a June evening, and the bare masonry of the place might almost have suggested a Eucharist in the catacombs, but Ewan did not think of that. He seemed to be able to think of nothing, and though he did perceive that Mr. Falconer, who appeared to be greatly moved, was using not the English communion office, but the proscribed Scottish liturgy of 1637. When the moment of communion approached, the two in front of him rose, and Archie glanced round at him, but Ewan shook his head, and so Dr. Cameron led his wife to one of the footstools and knelt beside her. But when Ewan saw them kneeling there without him, the ties of human affection drew him more strongly than his non-during training, with its strict doctrine of the Eucharist and his own fear of unworthy reception held him back. So he got up after all, and knelt humbly on the floor by Archie's side, and drinking of the cup after him whose viaticum it truly was, he felt for the moment wonderfully comforted, and that the giver of that feast, first instituted as it was in circumstances of betrayal and imminent death, had pardoned the hard and rebellious heart in him. And he remembered, too, and that peaceful Eucharist by the winter sea in Kilmory of Arnamurchen, and wished that Mr. Oliphant were here. And then he went back to the table where he had sat with Archie, and knelt down again there with his head against the edge, and for a long time. At last he looked up. The service was over. Mr. Falconer was gone. Archie, with his back to him, had his wife in his arms. And Ewan thought that if he also went, the two might have a moment or two together, save for the present of the deputy lieutenant, who, considerate as ever, was looking out of one of the little windows. But he could not go without a last word. He got to his feet, approached a little way, and said his cousin's name. Dr. Cameron put his wife into a chair and turned, and Ewan held out his hand. Oh, I shall not see you again to have speech with, he said in Gaelic. His very hands felt numb in Archie's clasp. Oh, I wish I could die with you, he whispered passionately. Archie held his hands tightly. Oh, dear lad, what then would Alison do, wanting you and your boys and your tenants? You have work here. Mine is over. Gentlemen, came Rainsford's voice from behind. There remains but eleven minutes ere the gates are closed. Oh, time, the inexorable, had dwindled to this. Ewan caught his breath. Oh, goodbye, he said, after a second of struggle. Oh, goodbye, faithful and true. Agreed look here for me. I will keep the promise I've made you. Look for me there, and give me a sign. He embraced Archie and went out quickly, for the door was ajar, with the armed sentries close outside. 
only Mrs. Cameron and General Rainsford remained behind. But outside, beyond the sentries, was still Mr. Falconer, who put his handkerchief to his eyes. As for Ewan, he leant against the wall to wait for Mrs. Cameron, and folded his arms tightly across his breast, as if by that constraint he could bridle a heart which felt as though it were breaking. Perhaps he shut his eyes. At any rate, he was roused by a touch on his arm. It was Mr. Falconer, still painfully agitated. Oh, sir, I shall spend this night praying less, I think, for him, than for strength to carry me through this terrible business to-morrow, without faltering. And you mean the attending Dr. Cameron to the scaffold? asked Ewan, in a voice which sounded completely indifferent. Yes, said the clergyman. I declare to you, sir, that I do not know how I am to come through it. And Dr. Cameron's composure shames me, who am supposed to uphold it. My great fear is lest any unworthy weakness of mine should shake his calm in his last moments, and though that hardly seems possible. And Ewan was sorry for him. Oh, you cannot withdraw now, I suppose, for he must have a minister with him. Oh, it is usual, I understand, but he does not need one, sir. He has not left it until the eleventh hour, like some, to make his peace with God. I must carry out as much of my office as he requires, but he does not need me to pray for him on the scaffold, and priest though I be. I shall ask his prayers. I would ask yours, too, sir, and that I do not by any weakness add to his burden to-morrow. You will look at him with a compassion which was shot through by a strange spasm of envy. This man, who dreaded it so, would see Archie once more at close quarters, be able to address him, hear his voice, and go with him to the very brink. And then through the half-open door came the deputy lieutenant, with Mrs. Cameron again on his arm. Oh, she looked half-fainting, yet she walked quite steadily. Mr. Falconer being now nearest the door, and General Rainsford put her into his charge, and called hastily for the warder to take up his post again within. In a kind of dream, Ewan watched the clergyman and the albert widow go down the stairs. His heart ached for her, little and brave and forlorn, her dress slipping slowly from one worn stone step to the next. He had started to follow her, and had descended a step or two, when he was aware of a voice calling hurriedly but softly to him from above. He went back again, wondering. It was the deputy lieutenant who had called after him, and now met him at the top of the stairway. Her Dr. Cameron has remembered something which he had intended to give his wife, but it was you whom he wished called back, if possible. He pulled out his watch. Four minutes, no longer, Mr. Cameron. So he was to have speech with Archie once more. And the warder being still outside, and the deputy lieutenant not seeming to purpose coming in again, and for that brief fraction of time, they would be alone. Had Archie made a pretext to that end? He was standing in the middle of the room, with something in his hand. Oh, I forgot to give these to Jean, as I intended, for my eldest son and he held out to Ewan two shabby shoe-buckles of steel. I'll bid Jean tell him from me, he said earnestly, and that I send him these, and not my silver ones, and that if I had gold ones I would not send him the gold, but these which I wore when skulking. 
for steel being hard and of small value is an emblem of constancy and disinterestedness and so i would have him always to be constant and disinterested in the service of his king and country and never to be either bribed or frightened from his duty how will you tell her that ewan no he had not been sent for under a pretext and ewan took the buckles she shall have them and i will faithfully repeat your message then he was mute it seemed as if archie were gone already as if the immeasurable gulf already severed them archibald cameron saw the dumb misery on his face and put his hand on his arm oh don't look like that my dearest ewan oh i thank god i am ready to be offered and you need have no apprehension for me to-morrow what is poor falconer i shall be sorry for indeed said ewan finding his voice again he seems most painfully apprehensive he was speaking to me just now how oh, i fear as he does that his presence will be no support to you i was about to ask him whether he could not procure another clergyman to take his place but so few in london are non-jurors and i suppose he would he never finished the colour came surging over his drawn face as a wild arrow of an idea sped winging into his brain oh archie he said breathlessly in gallic oh if a layman might oh if it could be contrived who could not who could not i take his place to-morrow in the doctor's face also the colour came and went for a moment oh my dear ewan oh, if it is like to prove a trial to falconer how would you oh i'd rather stand with you in the cart than see you stand there from a distance and be unable to get at you said ewan with great earnestness why oh, should be near you i could speak to you mr falconer says you have no need of his ministrations and i would not break down i swear to you oh archie would you be willing how oh, willing exclaimed archie in the same low voice oh i would give one of the few hours left me for your company oh, but it asks too much of you your one oh not so much as to stand in the crowd and watch you like a stranger reiterated ewan and oh my god the four minutes must be nearly gone tis as if providence had planned it for mr falconer is little under my height and lame of a leg as i am at times if i wore his dark clothes how oh, tis a pity he goes in lay dress but that cannot be helped and perhaps his wig who would look at my face and the clergyman always drives by himself to tyburn does he not oh i believe so said dr cameron considering and in a closed carriage you would not be seen on the way since you would not travel publicly and slowly as i shall oh, i only wish i could with you oh, but mr falconer apart would you not rather have some clergyman and as archie shook his head ardry asked hastily knowing that his time must be almost up oh is there anything which i must do there oh, to be sure i can ask mr falconer that Oh, I suppose it is usual to read a prayer. I should like the commendatory prayer from the prayer book. And I'd a thousand times rather you read that for me than poor Mr. Falconer. Mr. Cameron, said Rainsford, impatiently appearing at the door. Oh, you must come instantly, if you please, or I shall be obliged to detain you as a prisoner also. But not here with Dr. Cameron. You have but just time to join Mrs. Cameron in the coach. Oh, I have your leave, then, if I can contrive it whispered Ewan. Archibald Cameron bent his head. 
Oh, goodbye, he said in English. Remember my message. And this time Ewan hurried from the room with but the briefest farewell glance, so afraid was he of being detained and prevented from carrying through his scheme. By running down the stairs, he reached the carriage just before it started. Mr. Falconer, hat in hand, was at the door of it, Mrs. Cameron invisible within. Oh, give me your direction, sir, said Ardroy hastily to the clergyman. Oh, I must see you when I've escorted Mrs. Cameron home. It is of the utmost importance. Yes, he's much of a height with me, said something in his mind. Mr. Falconer gave it. Oh, I shall await you this evening, he said, and Ewan scrambled into the already moving coach. But now, as they drove out under the archway of the Lion Tower, he must put aside his own plan, his own grief, and think of one who was losing even more than he. Jean Cameron was sitting upright in the corner, her hands clasped, looking straight in front of her, and alarming him not a little by her rigidity. Suddenly she said, without looking at him, Oh, he's not afraid. No, madam, answered Ewan, no man was ever less afraid. How oh, the pure in heart shall see God, she murmured to herself. And a moment afterwards, somewhat to Ardroy's relief, she broke into wild weeping. End of section 23 Section 24 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. The Sallyport to Eternity Thursday, the 7th of June, 1753, dawned just as those would have wished who were intending to make its forenoon a holiday. Sunny and clear-skied, yet not without the promise of a cloud or two later on, whose shadow might be grateful if one had been standing for some hours in the heat. For many of the spectators would begin their pilgrimage to Tyburn very early in the day in order to secure good places, since, though the great triangular gallows could be seen from almost any distance, the scaffold beside it, and for what came after the gallows, was disappointingly low. Moreover, it was a thousand pities not to hear a last speech or confession, if such were made, and that was impossible, unless one were fairly near the cart in which the victim stood before being turned off. So hundreds set off between six and seven o'clock, and hundreds, even thousands more, came streaming without intermission along the Oxford Road all morning, and the later they came, the more they grumbled at the inferior positions which they were necessarily obliged to take up. Yet they grumbled with a certain holiday good nature. For, though disgraceful scenes did take place at Tyburn, some, at least, of those who in this eighteenth century came to see a fellow-creature half-hanged and then disemboweled, were quiet, well-to-do citizens who were conscious of nothing callous or unnatural in their conduct. An execution, being public, was a spectacle, and a free spectacle to boot. Moreover, today's was a special occasion, not a mere hanging for coining, or murder, or a six-shilling theft. Of those there were plenty, with a dozen or more turned off at a time. 
But Tyburn had not seen an execution for high treason for many years, the Jacobite rebels from Carlisle having all met their deaths on Kennington Common. And Ewan Cameron, as he sat in Mr. Falconer's clothes in the shut carriage, which, with some difficulty at the last, had brought him to Tyburn a little before noon, was appalled at the density and magnitude of the crowd, and almost more at the noise proceeding from it. Mr. Falconer had only agreed to the substitution, with many tergiversations and much misgiving. He was afraid that he was turning his back upon his duty. He was afraid that the fraud might be discovered by one of the tower officials, if the coach appointed to take him to Tyburn had to follow in its slow course the sledge on which the condemned Jacobite would be drawn there, a transit which would begin at ten and take a couple of hours or more. But while Ewan was closeted with the clergyman, there had come a message from the deputy sheriff of Middlesex in charge of the execution to say that, owing to the crowds which were anticipated on the morrow, the carriage was to fetch Mr. Falconer from his house at a later hour, and to go to Tyburn by a less frequented route. So Ewan did not follow Archibald Cameron in a sorry and yet perhaps triumphal procession through the streets of London. But he was come now by a less protracted pilgrimage and to the same heart-quelling goal. And he was come there first. He had not alighted, nor even looked out. There was a sheriff's man on the box beside the driver who would tell him, he said, at what moment his services would be required. Till then I should advise your reverence to stay quietly in the carriage, he was remarking now. There's nothing to be gained by standing about, unless you'd wish to get used to the sight of the gallows, and seeing as you ain't in parson's dress, some might not know you was the parson. I will stay in the coach, said Ewan. You haven't never attended a criminal here before, sir, I should suppose. No. That was true, too, of the man whom he was impersonating. The good-natured underling went away from the step, but came back a moment later. And no sign of him, he reported. The prisoner is long in coming, but that we expected, the streets being so thick with people. But we hear he's had a very quiet journey, no abuse and nothing thrown, indeed some folk in tears. "'Thank God for that,' said Ewan, and the sheriff's officer removed himself. Faces surged past the windows, faces young and old, stupid, excited, curious or grave. Some looked in. Once a drunken man tried the handle of the door, and the babel of sound went on like an evil sea. Ewan sat back in the corner and wondered, as he had wondered nearly all night, whether he had undertaken more than he had strength for. He tried to pray for himself as well as Archie, and could not. Not only was yesterday evening's rebellion back upon him in all its force, but, in addition, he was beset by a paralyzing and most horrible sensation, which he had never known in his life. He seemed himself to be standing on the edge of some vast battlement, about to be pushed off into naked, empty, yawning space that went down and down forever, blackness upon blackness. In this nothingness there was no God, no force of any kind, not even an evil force. Oh, certainly, there was no God, or he could not allow what was going to take place here, 
when a life like Archibald Cameron's would be flung into that void, and those other lives twined with his, wantonly maimed. Of what use to be brave, loyal, kind, and faithful? Of what use to be pure in heart, when there was no God to grant the promised vision, no God to see? Archie was going to be butchered. Not to what end? A louder hum, swelling to a roar, and penetrating the shut windows as if they had been paper, warned him that the prisoner's cortege was at last in sight. And as it seemed to be the only way of summoning up that composure, which he would soon so desperately need, had he even tried, as his cousin had yesterday suggested to him, to imagine that it was he who was facing this tearing of soul from body. The attempt did steady him, and by the time, it was a good deal longer than he expected, that the sheriff's man appeared at the window again, he was tolerably sure of himself. And he had the comfort of knowing that Archie, unless he had undergone a great change since yesterday, was not a prey to this numbing horror. How oh, the doctor's just gone up into the cart, sir. How oh, so now, if you please? And with that, Ewan stepped out from the coach into the brilliant sunshine, and the clamour of thousands of voices, and the sight of the gaunt erection almost above his head, and of the cart with a drooping-necked horse standing beneath it. In the cart, with his arms tied to his sides above the elbows, stood Archie, and another figure. It was then about half-past twelve. "'You go up them steps, sir, at the back of the cart,' said the sheriff's man, pointing. "'Way there, if you please, for the clergyman,' he shouted in a stentorian voice. "'Make way there, good people.' There was already a lane, but half closed up. It opened a little, as an excited murmur of, "'Oh, here's the parson,' surged along it, showed a disposition to close again, as several voices cried. "'Oh, that's no parson.' It opened again as others asseverated. Oh, tis a Roman Catholic priest, or a Presbyterian, oh, let him pass. And the speakers good-naturedly pressed themselves at their neighbor's back to make sufficient space. Ewan made his way to the steps. They were awkward to mount, and when he reached the last two, there was Archie, and what would have been the most natural way in the world had his arms been free, and trying to extend a hand to him. So you are come, he said, and the warmth of greeting in his voice and the smile he gave him was payment enough to Ewan and for what he still had to go through. Dr. Cameron was newly attired for his death, smarter than Ardroy had often seen him, in a new wig, a light-coloured coat, scarlet waistcoat and breeches, and white silk stockings. Ewan looked at him with a mute question in his eyes. Oh, I'm very well, said his cousin serenely, save that I'm a little fatigued with my journey. But, blessed be God, I'm now come to the end of it. This is a kind of new birthday for me, and there are many more witnesses than there were at my first. Still, rather dizzily, Ewan looked round at the sight which he was never to forget. The sea of lifted faces, indistinguishable from their mere number, the thousands of heads all turned to the same direction, the countless eyes all fixed upon this one spot. There was even a tall wooden erection to seat the better class. Near the cart in which he now stood, with Archie, 
were two or three mounted officials, one of whom was having trouble with a spirited horse. Not far away was the low, wheelless sledge on which the doctor had made his journey, the hangman sitting in front of him with a naked knife. Each of its four horses had a plume upon its head. And on a small scaffold, nearer still, its thin flame orange and wavering in the sunny breeze burnt a little fire. And Ewan knew its purpose. By it was a long block, an axe, and a great knife. Archibald Cameron's glance rested on them at the same moment, with an unconcern which was the more astonishing in that it contained not the slightest trace of bravado. At this juncture, the gentleman on the restive horse tried to attract Ewan's attention in order to say something to him, but the noise of the multitude made it impossible for his words to be heard, and though he beckoned in an authoritative manner for silence. He then tried to bring his horse nearer, but it would not obey. The rider thereupon dismounted and came to the side of the cart. "'I wished but to ask, sir,' he began courteously, looking up at Ewan. "'The Reverend Mr. Falconer, is it not? "'How long you are like to be of your office?' But it was Archibald Cameron who answered, "'To save him embarrassment, Ewan was sure. "'I require but very little time, sir, "'for it is but disagreeable being here, "'and I am as impatient to be gone as you are. "'Believe me, I am not at all impatient, Dr. Cameron,' "'replied the gentleman, with much consideration in his tone. "'I will see to it that you have as much time allowed you "'as you have a mind to.' "'You are Mr. Rayner, the under-sheriff,' queried Archie. Oh, "'I was not sure. "'Then, Mr. Rayner, as I do not intend to address the populace, "'for speaking was never my talent, "'may I have the favour of a few words with you?' Oh, "'Assuredly, sir,' replied Mr. Rayner. "'And for the better convenience of both of us, "'I will come up to you.' And in a few seconds he had joined them in the straw-strewn cart. At this, the clamour of the nearer portion of the crowd considerably increased, and it was plain from their cries that they imagined a reprieve had come at this last moment, and were not displeased at its arrival. But Mr. Rayner had no such document in his pocket. Ewan heard the brief conversation which ensued, as a man hears talk in a foreign tongue, and though every word of it was audible to him, it seemed remote and quite unreal. "'Although I do not intend to speak to the people, Mr. Rayner,' said Archibald Cameron very composedly. "'I've written a paper, as best I could by means of a bit of old pencil, and have given it to my wife, with directions that you should have a copy of it, since it contains the sentiments which, had I made a speech from this place, I should have expressed as my dying convictions. "'If Mrs. Cameron will deliver the paper to me,' replied Mr. Rayner, "'I will take order that it is printed and published,' as is customary in the case of a dying speech. The doctor inclined his head. He said, with much gentleness, for your civility and concern towards a man so unhappy as I. He paused a moment, as I appear to be. But, believe me, this day which has brought me to the end of life is a joyful one. I should wish it known that I die in the religion of the Episcopal Church of Scotland, which I have always professed though not always practised. I know that I am a sinner, 
but I have no doubt of God's mercy and forgiveness, even as I forgive all my enemies, especially those who have brought about my death. You have the sympathy of a great many persons, sir, said Mr. Rayner in a low voice. And after a second or two's pause, he added, There is nothing further that you wish to say, no last request to make. Yes, there is one, answered the dying Jacobite, and Ewan saw him glance, with no trace of flinching, at the little scaffold. It is that you would defer, as long as the law will admit, and the execution of the latter part of the sentence. I think you know what I mean, he added. I know so well, replied the under-sheriff gravely, that I give you my solemn word of honour, that it shall be deferred for at least half an hour. That much I can do for you, and I will. And with a bow he went down from the cart. His last words had lifted a great and sickening apprehension from Ewan's heart, and, who knows, from Archibald Cameron's also. Oh, I think there's nothing now to wait for, said Archie, and he suddenly looked rather weary, though he showed no other sign of the strain upon nerves which, however heroically commanded, were only human. And, oh, my dearest Ewan, he dropped his voice until it was almost inaudible. Oh, take my last and best thanks for coming and facing this with me, and for me. Oh, but I've done nothing, said Ewan, in a dead voice. Oh, nothing! You've come to the threshold with me. What can any friend do more? And now I must go through. But you wished me to read a prayer with you, did you not? Oh, I think I can do it, and it would perhaps seem more fitting. In his heart, still a thrall to that dark horror of nothingness, Ewan thought what a mockery the act would be. And yet, would it? If you can, said Archie gently, I will say it together. You have a prayer book. Ewan took Mr. Falconer's out of his pocket, and while the quiet horse in the shafts shook his bridle once or twice, as if impatient, and the flame on the scaffold replenished, shot up higher, and Ewan read with very fair steadiness, and Archie repeated after him, the commendatory prayer for a sick person on the point of departure. Around the cart many bared their heads and were silent, and though in the distance the noise of innumerable voices still continued, as unceasing as the oceans. Oh, almighty God, with whom do live the spirits of just men made perfect, after they are delivered from their earthly prison. We humbly commend the soul of this thy servant, our dear brother, into thy hands, as into the hands of a faithful Creator and merciful Saviour. And, as Ewan went on, the poignancy, even the irony of that prayer, read as it was over a man in full health and in the prime of life, was softened by the perfect courage and readiness of him who joined in it. The black void was neither black nor void any longer, and for a moment this parting under Tyburn's beams almost seemed like some mere transient farewell, some valediction on the brink of an earthly sea, some hand-clasp ere crossing one of their own highland locks, when, as so often, the mist was hanging low on the farther shore. 
he finished. Amen, said Archibald Cameron in a low voice. He looked up for a moment into the June blue, where the swallows were reeling. Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Oh, Ewan, you had best go now. Oh, and do not fear for me. You heard what Mr. Rayner promised. Ewan was gazing at him with shining eyes. Oh, I know now that there is a God, and that you are going to him. May he give me grace to follow you some day. Then Archie held out his hands as far as he could, and they kissed each other, and Ewan turned away. Yet on the narrow steps leading from the cart he all but stumbled, and above him he heard the sound of his cousin's voice for the last time. It still held the same extraordinary and unfeigned composure, even cheerfulness, in its tones. Oh, take care how you go. I think you don't know the way as well as I do. The press was now so enormous that though Ewan was able to reach the carriage again, it was found impossible to drive it away. So he was there, on his knees, when Archibald Cameron died, though he saw nothing of it. Afterwards, he was glad that he had been so near him at his passing, even glad that the long groan of the multitude round the scaffold told him the very moment. And before, at last, a way could be made for the coach, he knew by the length of time itself and that Mr. Rayner had kept his word, and that the brave and gentle heart cast into the fire had been taken from no living breast. End of section 24Section 25 of The Gleam in the North by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Epilogue. O'Keefe wants to swim too. O'Keefe cannot, and let us have no greeting over it now, said the handsome elderly lady, who, coming at the end of the long, fine day to take the air by the side of Loch Nahollere before sunset, had just been annexed by her younger great-nephew. Little Keith, in Morag's guardianship, had been enviously watching his brother's progress through the clear, very still water, but Donald was back now, and dressed, in the boat wherein Angus McMartin, his instructor, had rowed him out a little way from shore. When Donald pushed Keithy into the lock, proceeded the small speaker, looking up earnestly at Miss Cameron. Keithy swimmed and swimmed till father came. Now Donald couldn't swim then. Didn't Keithy swim when you pushed him in, Donald? he inquired, raising his voice to carry to the boat. Nine months older than on the disastrous day to which he so uncompromisingly referred, Keith no longer used the possessive case of the personal pronoun to designate himself. Donald, preferring to ignore this query entirely, cupped his hands together, and shouted with all the strength of his healthy young lungs. "'Oh, Angus says that you can come into the boat now, Keithy, if Aunt Margaret will allow it, and sail your wee ship. How oh, will you come too, Aunt Margaret?' "'No, thank you, Donald, I will not,' replied his great-aunt, with much firmness and in her ordinary voice. "'I prefer something stable under my feet.' "'Oh, Keithy,' she clutched at his impatient little form, Oh, bide still, 
Or do you want to fall in again? O'Keefe didn't fall in, corrected the child, raising his eyes of velvet. Donald pushed. Oh, now don't say again that your brother pushed you, admonished Miss Cameron. It may be true, but you'd do better to forget it. You know that Donald is very sorry for having done it, and you yourself were very naughty to throw in his claymore hilt. Yes, admitted little Keith, and his features took on an angelic expression of penitence. O'Keefe was very naughty, he sighed. Oh, but good now, he added with a more satisfied air, and as if to prove this statement, stooped, his hand still in Miss Cameron's, picked up something at his feet and held it out towards his brother in the boat, which Angus was now rowing into shore. Oh, Donald, Donald, you can throw my wee ship in the loch, and because I throwed... The elder boy, standing in the bows, gave a sound like a snort. Oh, you know very well that your ship floats, he retorted indignantly. Oh, it is not the same thing at all. Oh, but the ship goes, goes like this sometimes, explained Keith eagerly, illustrating with a little painted vessel itself and the topsy-turvy position, which he had not vocabulary enough to describe. Oh, come now, interrupted Aunt Margaret, who was always direct, yet not the less esteemed by her great-nephews on that account. Are you going with Angus, or no, Keithy? I'll wait, ma'am, if you please, till I make the boaty fast, said the careful Angus. At three and twenty he was as reliable with his chieftain's children, or with anything that was his, as any veteran. He brought the boat into the bank, and knelt to pass the rope round the root of a birch tree. I shall sail my wee ship round and round and round the island, proclaimed Keith, skipping up and down. How oh, I shall sail— Oh, preserve us, who's yonder? broke in Miss Cameron, her eyes caught all at once by the figures of a man and a woman under the trees on the southern shore of the loch. They were standing very close together, looking at each other, very still and very silent, too, else in the windless calm their voices must have floated over the water, and the westering sun smote upon an auburn head. "'Oh, it's father! He's come home at last!' cried Donald, and was out of the boat like a flash, and tearing along the path towards them. Angus jerked himself upright. "'Oh, indeed, indeed it's himself!' said he, in an awed and joyful voice. "'How blessings be on the day!' "'I'll take the bairn and go,' commanded Miss Cameron, and in a second the young piper had tossed Keithy to his shoulder, and was off to his master. The sunset had been angry. Now it was smoothed to serenity. A sea of the palest chrysoprase, with little islands of gold, which had once glowed fiery rose, and far-stretching harbours clasped between promontories of pearl. Oh, I shall never forget it, said Ewan to the two women, the old and the young, who stood with him where the look of the eagle reflected that dying glory. No one who was there will ever forget it. He went to his death as a man goes to a banquet. All London was talking of it, friends and foes alike. And now Scotland. See, when I came through Edinburgh, this letter from London had already been published in a journal there. He pulled out a newspaper and pointed, and the two ladies read. Dr. Cameron suffered last Thursday like a brave man, a Christian and a gentleman. In short, I cannot express what I have heard of his behaviour. 
It was reckoned by the thousands that saw him more than human, and has left such an impression on the minds of all as will not soon be forgot. His merit is confessed by all parties, and his death can hardly be called untimely, as his behaviour rendered his last day worth an age of common life. "'We have had another Montrose in our kinsman,' said Miss Cameron proudly. "'But it does not surprise me. Did his body suffer the same fate as the great Marquis's? And now, Aunt Margaret, it was not quartered, and though his head was struck off, it was not exposed on Temple Bar, but buried in the coffin.' And he was silent, thinking of that midnight scene in the vault of the chapel of the Savoy, where, in the presence of a little half-clandestine gathering of mourners and sympathizers, the mangled body of the last Jacobite martyr had been laid to rest. Again he saw the torchlight run glimmering over the inscription on the coffin lid, heard Hector sobbing like a woman, and bowed his own head before the overwhelming conviction which possessed him, and that the determination to have vengeance on the informer, which flourished so greenly in his heart, was but a mean, a shriveled, a dishonouring wreath, to lay upon the grave of one who had died with such noble and unvindictive fortitude. Archie's life was too precious to be paid for in such coin. The traitor must go untouched by his hand, and the renunciation should be his tribute to the dear and honoured memory of Archibald Cameron. Oh, not that he forgave, though Archie had forgiven. Ewan came back to the present. Miss Cameron was drying her eyes. Alison's face was hidden against his breast. He held her close and laid his cheek for an instant on her head, for he could feel rather than hear her little sobbing breaths, and he guessed that she was saying to herself, Oh, Ewan, Ewan, what if it had been you? And then he saw Donald, preceded by Lueth the deerhound, come bounding along the path under the birch trees. In the boy's hand was the hilt of the broken claymore from Culloden Moor. Why, well, I went to the house to fetch this, father, he cried, holding it aloft. I told you that Angus dived and brought it up again. And I've had a notion, he went on fast and excitedly, and that it could be mended and have a new blade put to it. Oh, why is mother crying? Holding Alison closer than ever, Ardroy took the broken blade and looked at it as if he were seeing more than what he held. No, he said, after a pause. Oh, I think it can never be mended, now. It never could have been. Oh, I do not know, Donald, but that you'll have to get your new kind of sword when you are a man. He gazed over his wife's dark head at the sunset, fading, fading. How Archie had loved this land of mist and wind and clear shining, which he had left like a malefactor and a hero. And these locks and hills would doubtless yet breed more of his temper, but never a one who united to his courage and loyalty so much simple goodness. Never a one. All the colour was gone from the sunset now, save the faintest opal tones, like the last cadence of a song. The four of them turned from the lockside and began to go homewards under that June sky of the north, which knows no real night. And the child with the broken sword led the way. End of section 25
End of The Gleam in the North by D.K. Broster.